0: Does your startup need to get a SOC 2 report to close big deals, or do you already have a SOC 2 report and want to make it easier to maintain year after year? Vanta has built software that makes it easier to both get and renew your SOC 2. With Vanta, you avoid anxious auditor interviews, and you don't have to capture hundreds of screenshots proving that you are SOC 2 compliant to your auditor. Companies like Lattice, User Testing, and hundreds of others have successfully gotten their SOC 2 reports with Vanta. Equity listeners can redeem $1000 off a of Vanta subscription by visiting vanta.com/equity. That's vanta.com/equity.
1: Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital focused podcast, where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, as always, and I'm joined by two of my favorite people, one of which is Danny Crichton, a managing editor here at TechCrunch. Danny, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, Alex. Glad to hear it. And we also have Natasha Moscarenis, one of our early stage VC reporters. How are you?
2: I'm great. TechCrunch Disrupt is next week. So it's like pretty, it feels like pre Christmas.
1: If Christmas was, instead of a day of feasting and presents, a day, a a week-long stress ball, uh, Disrupt is going to be great, but it's it's a lot of work, you know? It's going to be great
0: for people who watch. It is not great for those who have to produce it. Nerd
2: prom. It's like nerd prom protect
1: it's it's like nerd prom but also with a lot of homework is how I think about it um anyways we're going you should be going it's going to be fun and uh we will not talk about it more because it's going to stress me out so we're going to move on and we're going to kick off this week with uh, kind of straight from the tweets right to the pod is how I feel about this uh if you've been paying attention to the changes in the kind of venture capital you know tech money world you're bored of SPACs which is fine because we have a whole new thing to nerd out about which are rolling funds and it's a new way to deploy VC capital and our own Natasha wrote a piece about it and is going to tell us what the hell they are.
2: Yeah. So, you know, the reason I like rolling funds more than SPACs is that they are easier to understand. Both are kind of accessible, but rolling funds make more sense. The best way to think of it is like how Angelus CEO Avla Coley described it, which is how a venture fund structure would look like if it was built in the age of software. So think of it as an investment vehicle that raises money through a quarterly subscription from investors. You have to kind of do a minimum commit for one year, but after that, you can kind of re-up. And a lot of emerging fund managers are using it. We talked about Sahil from Gumroad a couple weeks ago, but we've seen about 70 rolling funds close between February and August.
1: What does it mean for a rolling fund to close?
2: Good question. So basically, it, it is arbitrary, kind of similar to traditional funds where you have your first close. You can have an amount that you try to get to. And Angel has kind of said that people have been creating their own mini caps in order to kind of feel ready to announce to the world. I know with Sahil's fund, he kind of announced it at $5 million, but it's already at $7 million just a month later. But when you sit, when you hear $5 million or $7 million, you think of it as kind of a annual look at how the fund is going to have its total capital.
1: I think these are great. Danny, you've actually been in the VC world. Are, are these amateur vehicles for
0: noobs or are these neat ways to approach capital in a new way? I think it's like the lean startup model applied to venture funds. I mean, uh, you know, in the traditional venture world, you have to raise from LPs in advance. So you, you know, raise on a blank check, you know, you're raising and saying, look, I'm a smart person. I'm with a smart partner. Give me money and I'm able to invest. That can take a long time, right? Uh, It's not uncommon for people to spend two, even three years raising from LPs to do their debut fund. With rolling funds, you, you can almost start immediately. Right, there's this opportunity to say, "Hey, I have a couple of friends. I have a couple of people interested. I can write 10K checks starting next month," and that that opens up the the doors to a lot more folks who have traditionally been locked out of the industry. So I'm really excited about that. I think the challenge here is, you know, there's less of that commitment from LPs. You know, in in the traditional fund model, you would spend a lot of work building relationships. But on the flip side, you actually have a fund that has a dedicated resource pool of capital to to, to invest from. With with rolling funds, it's a lot more haphazard, right? You're going to have more money, less money over time as people kind of join and leave. And so to me, it, it's a compromise, right? It's a faster way to get started. My guess is it ends up being a pathway to traditional funds for a whole new generation of VC managers.
2: On that note too, like I think one of the flagship qualities and controversial qualities of a rolling fund is a SEC regulation that allows anyone who starts the fund to raise in public, raise, you know, talk about their process solicit, which traditional funds can't do. And so Danny, when I hear the words kind of like emerging generation of fund managers, I think a lot about how it's going to be much more people with networks, loud on Twitter. Maybe you thought that they were just people that tweeted memes, but now all of a sudden, (laughs) they're people that can invest, which excites me too.
0: Well, and I think, you know, it solves a huge chicken and egg problem for a lot of emerging managers, right? Every LP asks you, what have you invested in before? And if you don't have money yourself to invest in large checks, like that, that is a question you just can't answer. I think rolling funds, you know, takes advantage of that sort of influencer marketing, but it gives you an opportunity to say, look, let me go do five deals over the next year, prove that I have value, prove that I can, you know, pick the next great companies. And assuming those companies do follow on investments, you know, you go out to LPs and now you have a track record to build upon. One thing that I'm curious about about this is if it's going to diversify the LP
1: base, because I think a lot of the LPs are these family offices, there are these pension funds, university endowments, which is all kind of like a great cohort of money, but it's not all the money in the world, and not everyone gets to profit from that equally. And so if there's a way to diversify the LP base, let other people build you know, familial wealth, for example, through this sort of process, uh, I think it's great. Uh, I'm curious to see though what happens in six months and if this initial boom dissipates or if we see a regularly kind of continued pace of fundraising by these rolling funds. But you know, it's gonna be a long time until we see results.
0: Well, I think I think one of the big questions is, you know, what does the future of the seed fundraise going to look like? You know, we've seen party rounds. You know, eight years ago, we saw party rounds most recently with what was that wine company we talked house. about that had a, had a house house? With, oh my gosh, it's not yeah. spelled the way you think house is spelled. Which had what 120 investors? But that's the future of the seed fundraise. I think you're going to see startups raise from you know three, four, five dozen rolling funds simultaneously. And that's going to put a lot of pressure on traditional seed funds who are used to buying all their ownership in one go. They're just not going to have the same opportunity to do that.
2: And I'll add, I feel like there has always been this wave of founders that invest in companies, but that seems even more prevalent now. And so I imagine that we're going to see founders even more prominently on term sheets, especially at the seed stage.
1: Yeah, I'm always just worried though about founders who invest that much. I'm like, what are you doing at your day job? You know, why, why, why do you have two things? And, you know, being super polite about this because I don't know his current work setup, but Austin from uh, Morning Brew announced on Twitter that he's going to put together a in fund and uh, he seems busy. So I'm going to be curious to see what that looks like kind of in, in practice. But whenever a startup CEO talks more about their angel investments than their startup, I begin to get concerned about their focus. So I'm sure Austin's going to do a good job. He's a smart guy. I like him. But it's an interesting kind of data point on the uh, on the broader story. Uh, but let's let's scoot along uh, to some fascinating, enormous rounds. We have a lot of rounds to get through today, so so buckle in. We're going to start with Baiju, which raised five hundred million dollars. Kind of keeping up our ed tech.
0: Theme. Not a rolling fund.
1: Yeah, no, ter- <laughs> definitely not a rolling <laughs> fund. In in this case, from Silver Lake, Owl, and some other folks. Uh, Natasha, tell us about this ed tech bet.
2: Yeah, I don't think we've ever broken down Baiju's as a company on equity. So I'm going to just give a quick background. It was founded in 2011. It has investments from, as you said, Owl Ventures, one of the largest ed tech focused funds and Zuckerberg. Um, it became a unicorn in 2018. Its whole pitch was live personalized learning for K through 12 and also students that are going to be taking exams like the GMAT, GRE. There's a couple other ones that are more specialized to like India and it's done really well. One of my favorite details about Baiju is that it's named after the founder, Baiju Ravin Duran. Um, and he you know, excelled at a CAT exam 10 years ago, is an Olympiad winner. Um, and so he named the company after himself. And I think that's great. Um, and they also have my favorite actor as their ambassador, who's a major Bollywood actor, Shahrukh Khan. And I'm not trying to take us off path, but there is like this huge Bollywood fandom that genuinely, the influencer market in Bollywood is nothing like the influencer market in the States. People just stand outside of Shah Rukh Khan's house. And by people, I mean like thousands on a daily basis. And so to have him as an ambassador and to say yes, and to also be the face of your company, I believe had a huge reason to why Baiju's became a household name.
0: Well, I don't know if it's because he's super popular or, or just the, the scale of this, uh, the startup, but Um, Baiju now has more than 64 million registered users, 4.2 million paying subscribers. And so to me, it's like a, a proof point that people will pay for ed tech when it's appropriate to what they're trying to learn.
2: Especially internationally. There is this huge consumer hunger internationally for supplemental education, and you really see it defined by Baiju's. They acquired a startup earlier this year, or earlier this pandemic White White Hand Jr. and is now kind of the most valued ed tech startup in the world. And then the the newest news is that they raised another $500 in an investment round from Silver Lake. So they're just adding capital and becoming an insane force. It's kind of hard to get your head around it.
1: Yeah, and nearly an $11 billion valuation. I think this is the most valuable ed tech startup that I've ever seen or at least that I can recall offhand. So this is the high watermark for the, the sector. And I think it goes to show that how big they can get. This is not a thing that caps out at a billion. You can get into the Decacorn range. And as a side note, we had prepared a treat for you guys. I was going to list in reverse chronological order all of Shai Rukhan's Khan's films, but then I pulled. That was up-
2: great pronunciation, Alex. Let me Thank just you.
1: Say it. I reread it before I said it out loud. I'm like, we're going to look at every single letter in this to avoid being dumb. And I was going to do this, starting with Diwana and going through Chamatkar and then a thousand oh my other God. ones. But there's so many, it would actually be the rest of the show of me listing movies. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. But you can go. He's productive. You can go to Wikipedia and look at the filmography yourself. But he is a big deal. And I learned new things today. So I like that.
2: And then also Silver Lake has been busy with other things too in India. Danny, maybe take us through their other investment. This yeah, week.
0: Silver Lake is like a rolling fund in that they're just spraying money, except they're spraying money in the <laughs> 500 million to a billion range. So the other news this week was that Silver Lake invested a billion dollars into Mukesh Ambani's Reliance Retail. So you might have heard about Reliance in the context of Geo, which is one of the competitors in the Indian telco space. Reliance is a, a multi-generational family conglomerate most well known in the oil and energy industries but it also owns uh, india's largest retail chain almost 12,000 stores across the country and so silver lake bought precisely 1.75 percent for a billion bucks <laughs> so Ooh. valuing the company at a roughly 57 billion dollar price point well, the interesting dynamic here is geo which is also owned by reliance and then you have reliance retail are combining forces to build out geo which is sort of an e-commerce competitor that's kind of gearing up to fight amazon locally in india so geomart will compete locally in india with
1: flipkart and amazon because walmart owns that's flipkart right. right that's right so this will be the kind of the the the, the only india-owned indian-focused e-commerce giant
0: that's right and of course okay. given mukesh Ambani, who's uh, one of not only one of the richest asians in asia but is also I, th- I think the number one richest person in india proper has huge rolodex of folks at all levels of government and so one of the c- key questions is, is you know for walmart for amazon you know, how are they going to remain competitive with Geomart when the person running you know, Reliance is so powerful locally?
2: TikTok is the answer to all concerns <laughs> about Walmart.
1: <laughs> I thought we were going to get away the whole episode with not talking about TikTok, but apparently, apparently not. Is there a book out on Reliance that I could read? I feel like this has gotten to the point now that I need to go back and learn the back history.
0: I think one of the best books you can read is uh, James Crabstree's The Billionaire Raj, which is really a profile of of the Ambani family and some of his most notable business and political achievements and scandals.
1: And this is why I love the show, because that question has an answer.
2: I was going to recommend, and I know it's cliche to recommend your fellow colleague, but I think Manish Singh is doing an amazing work on on this. And he wrote a really great profile of the Ambani family that I think is worth reading. Probably takes 10 minutes, but great with your morning coffee. I did it.
1: Okay, I will put that in the show notes because I did not know we had that on the site, but I will go rectify that and tweet it out so everyone can catch up on that as well. And then we're going to move on to a new brand new segment on equity. We've never done this before. (laughs) Welcome to companies that start with an S that raised
0: over $100 million this week. As you can see, we're very, very creative on the show this week.
1: Like I said, Disrupt is next week and we have all been a little busy. So maybe the section names have fallen (laughs) slightly, but they're very, very clear about what we're talking about. And we have two companies, SNCC and sprinkler and we're 90 percent sure we're pronouncing those correctly uh i'll do snick and then uh natasha can you do sprinkler for us i got you okay so uh both companies raised 200 million snick raised at a 2.6 billion six billion dollar valuation this caught our eye because it raised nine months ago that, that was 150 million at a one billion dollar plus valuation so probably about a 2x maybe 2.2x uh, valuation increase in less than a year ton more capital what does snick do well if you're building an application you don't want to add security later and so snicks technology lets you kind of build more secure elements into the product as you go which sounds pretty smart for context the cybersecurity world is incredibly hot in the last quarter crowdstrike added 104 million of arr which is more than a million of arr per day for the whole quarter which i thought was pretty impressive to kind of show you how much demand there is for cybersecurity products in general and from our own story written by ron miller snicks arr was growing at a remarkable 275% year over year which is um that's damn good so proud of that Natasha Sprinkler what's going on
2: Yeah so another Ron Miller piece this week was Sprinkler raising 200 million at a 2.7 billion valuation so take that Snick they are a customer experience platform and compete with a lot of companies, because what does customer experience platform really mean? But no, jokes aside, they view their competitors as Salesforce, Adobe, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. It's their first raise after four years, they've spent a lot of time acquiring a dozen companies. And they're now working with a big private equity firm to propel them into future growth.
0: And I think one of the interesting things here is, you know, the company was founded in 2009. So about 11 years ago. So it's, it's hitting that kind of little long of the tooth it's been a long road it's 2.7 billion which is great another unicorn but obviously it's not a snowflake or any of the other s-word uh startups like slack we're about to talk about yep so i think i think it's a positive sign but you know up against salesforce again another s-word company this is like the whole category today but customer experience management has to be one of the most competitive enterprise SaaS categories so i wish them well with the new capital
1: yeah well speaking of uh s-based companies that will compete with this sprout social which does not compete with all of Sprinkler, just kind of the social side of it, they do kind of line up there, has seen its share price go up dramatically. So uh, a piece of stock in Sprout Social is now about $34 a share. It was down at 12, 13 this April. So a dramatic oh. return to form, showing I think a lot of investor confidence in this domain, and that can help explain why Sprinkler is raising money now. Uh, companies that it competes with are, are showing strong multiples, which always drives investor interest because of potential returns
0: so talking about sprout social there was another social stock that also uh we learned more about its earnings this week slack alex you you wrote about this week
1: Uh, i'll give that a four out of ten on the Segway front but it works okay so slack look everyone knows that uh, a couple of companies caught an early COVID bump and slack was one of the most famous ones if you go back to like the april time frame they were dropping like you know new usage numbers and this huge you know boom of people just showing up And everyone kind of thought Slack was going to do incredibly well because why wouldn't it in this COVID work from home era? Slack did really well, but not quite well enough for certain investor expectations. They reported about 216 million in revenue for the most recent quarter, up 49%, which is pretty good for a company of that size. They lost 75 million on a gap basis, but they broke even on an adjusted basis, which tells you a lot about adjusted kind of math for uh, economics here but uh, the shares dropped pretty sharply, I think 16% the next day. And the question was why, why didn't Slack hold on to its value after that quarter that beat official analyst expectations. And the short version is the street had a different set of estimates than the analysts and that's how it was priced. And so, you know, Slack is doing fine. It's gonna be a healthy company, but certainly a valuation decrease for a early COVID darling.
2: Yeah, let me add to, I know we talked to GGV this week about kind of Slack's performance. They didn't give us too many details. But they did remind me a little bit about how growth, of course, is going to be tempered a bit now that we're out of the havoc and chaotic portion, at least reaction wise to the pandemic. And so that's something to keep in mind, too. Like there's in no way I'm reading this as like Slack failing. It's just not doing as well. No,
1: not even close. I mean, Slack had a really, really good quarter. It's just that people that had priced the stock where they did expected even more. They expected them to beat expectations by a greater margin. That's a tough game to play, but that's how a lot of companies are valued today. And that's why a lot of SaaS evaluations are so hot for startups, because these public companies are really flying high and kind of dragging the bar or the floor higher. Here's a case where a good quarter simply wasn't enough.
0: Well, I think also when you compare it to a lot of the other tech companies we talk about, Slack has a direct and very, very competitive competitor. Uh, (laughs) That's one of my best phrases of the day. Uh, which is Microsoft Teams. You know, Microsoft yeah. is investing a huge amount of infrastructure and time and money and resources into Teams. It competes directly with Slack. And of course, it's Microsoft, right? So it's able to bundle a lot of its products together into one big licensing package. And so, you know, Slack, I think, is obviously st- stable, strong, growing 50% year over year, but it has this massive attack coming on its left flank. And I, I'm not sure, you know, what ends up happening in the long term. My guess is they're going to continue to be kind of boxed out of a lar- large number of the 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 biggest enterprise customers And are sort of stuck in that medium size which is fine and great but it's not as big as people want it to be i want to the reason we bring up slack today
1: isn't just to say they didn't do as well as expected that's kind of whatever news but what's really kind of the the nub here that we want to bring to the startup world is what slack said about the market it's selling into and if you go back and read their sec filing about their earnings there's a lot of stuff about COVID 19 that is really worth your time and uh, we, we pulled some of it out for you so uh, Slack said at the beginning of the pandemic, they saw a significant increase in demand and usage of Slack, including an increase in our number of paid customers. That seems to have kind of faded away, but things have stayed that are bad. So the good stuff came and went, and some of the tricky bits are still here. For example, quote, the rate of growth of total organizations on Slack has reverted to a level more in line with trends we experienced prior to the pandemic. In addition, we've experienced an increase in paid customer churn and a decrease in expansion within existing paid customers during the six months that ended. So we're seeing some of the uh, the economic drag show up in Slack's results, even though it's still doing very, very well. And I'm curious if those elements that Slack is struggling with also trickle down into the kind of the series A, B, C
0: stage of startup land.
2: I'm curious too. Like, I know Zoom obviously did amazingly well, but is the same effect going to happen with Zoom next quarter?
0: Seen, I think we've seen some of these metrics in Zoom. You know Zoom seems to have been able to hold on to its valuation much better than Slack, but in much of the same way in which they're having a funnel problem, a huge number of new users join the platform, but not as great a, a conversion rate to paid. I think we're going to see something similar. The difference is that Slack is fundamentally a team's product. It is designed for an organization. Very few people seem to use it for for fun. I mean, it doesn't really compete with Discord or a bunch of the other chatting apps out there. Whereas Zoom seems to have broken a little bit into the consumer world, right, and that makes it a little bit harder, in my view, to kind of judge its long-term uh, valuation.
1: Yeah, my family call that we host every Sunday is still on Zoom, you know. And if they demanded that we pay for that, we would, frankly. But we're on someone else's paid account. I forget, it's like my wife's or something. But Slack, though, Slack is just work, and you know Microsoft is is going to pummel it. But it, the, just the general drag in the market for high-profile, even high-demand SaaS products is something to keep in mind. As we talk a lot about the accelerating digital transformation. And the current climate for startup growth. This is why we watch pr- public markets; they can tell us about what's going on on the private side. I don't want to go on forever about earnings because I know I'll bore the tears off of everyone. But I will say there was one other standout kind of quarter that I talked about, which is CrowdStrike. I talked to the CEO this week. I think Zoom and CrowdStrike had the two best quarters in the SaaS world. There were a couple of other companies that did very well, but mostly were kind of you know pretty good, which was I think less of a result than people expected. But Let's move on and talk about Snowflake, Danny. Did you see the news about Snowflake? And amazingly enough, Warren Buffett.
0: Yes. So, so Warren Buffett, you know, famously the Oracle of Omaha, who owns, I guess, Geico and a bunch of uh, consumer product goods companies, has, for I I think, the first time, invested in a, first of all, a a new issue on, on the public stock exchange, a technology company. Although he has large, I think, investments in some of the large fan companies, and has also invested. An unpro- what, what, what is it? An unprofitable company? It's a falling losses company, I think is the phrase we were <laughs> sort of instructed on. Um, so it's actually an amazing story. So uh, the company is raising $250 million each from Salesforce Ventures and Berkshire Hathaway. And then Berkshire is going to go and double down buying 4 million of insider shares. So I mean, this is a huge investment for Berkshire. Of course, Snowflake, if you don't know, has to be one of the best enterprise companies of all time. Founded in, in Summit's offices uh, in Menlo Park, only a couple of years ago, now worth about twelve billion dollars in terms of valuation. This is, you know, we talk. I mean, I was joking about Sprinkler, but you know, Sprinkler is an eleven-year-old company valued at two point seven billion. Snowflake is a seven-year-old company valued at twelve billion. You know, this is just a totally different scale of growth. One of the best companies of all time, and and what they focus on is data warehousing. For those who don't remember, so they focus on you know taking your uh, raw data from your data lake. And converting it into something that's usable by every other application and data scientist in your company, and that just happens to be one of the core challenges for every enterprise and the digital transformation going on today.
1: And uh, that growth that Danny's talking about has pushed the valuation up. You got its kind of first IPO price range interval, and it's going to be worth up to, and if my math holds up, about twenty-four billion dollars, twenty-three point seven. Uh, so more than a doubling, effectively, of its last valuation, uh, if it doesn't raise its range, which it might, which means that and, this and, and, please, and
0: that last valuation was February twenty twenty. Yeah, I mean, they've okay. doubled since February. <laughs> you say that. You say that, but 2020 has been 17 years long, so it's actually been quite an <laughs> interval
1: of time. Um, but I, I can't recall Salesforce Ventures doing a, what, what should we call this, a co-IPO investment in primary equity uh, in a company like this uh, before. I. I and the addition well, of brochures.
0: It's a pipe, right? I mean, this is a, this is literally a private investment in a public equity or a near public equity. You're so getting a, close to the S word. A pin pin you don't, P- you're Getting close. Don't say the S word. Nope,
1: nope. Um, Now, as a quick final note about Snowflake, because we're gonna talk about a lot about it next week, I I presume when it does price and I I start to trade. But really briefly, a reminder about why Danny said it's one of the best enterprise companies of all time. Actually, he said the best. I'm gonna temper that form and say one of one of the best in uh, its fiscal year ending January 31, 2019. So most basically, kind of calendar 2018. It had about 100 million in revenue, 97 million. The next year, it had 265 million. And then uh, it in the first half of 2019, it had 100 million. In the first half of this year, it had 242 million. So this is the kind of growth we're talking about just spectacular, staggering, shocking, enormous growth. And as Denny said, falling losses. So you can kind of see the path to profitability. This is going to be the IPO of the season. Sorry, Airbnb, you're not very cool anymore. No flake for days. Good. And then that brings us back to Palantir, as always. What is the latest shenanigans, Denny?
0: Palantir. So we obviously have talked about it quite a bit. We now have a date. It's September 23rd is the target date for the IPO. Palantir has submitted a number of revisions to its S1. And the most recent one actually gave us a lot of insight on how insiders are sort of approaching this this, this S1. So as a reminder, Palantir is doing a direct listing with a lockup. So they're sort of pioneering... The worst part of an IPO and the worst part and the worst part of a yeah. direct listing, but they're, they're combining <laughs> the two together. Um, what we found out, and I, you know, this number was in the original uh, S one, is that there's there's roughly three thousand shareholders who currently own Palantir stock. So that that is actually a huge number if you compare it to other tech companies like Snowflake, like Sumo Logic. There's only a couple hundred shareholders, and that's mostly because employees generally, and at least in modern companies, have ten years expiration dates on their stock options. So they don't have to exercise their stock options and buy stock early. They can wait till the IPO when it's liquid to take those uh, stock options. But Palantir, which has been around seventeen years, a lot of insiders had to buy stock options over the years. So it also has a very robust secondary trading market. And so what we learned in the in the latest filing was the share price internally has actually zoomed up quite a bit over the last two months. It went from about a five thirty a share. To all the way up to $9.17 on September 1st, which was the last day that secondary share trading was allowed for the company. But the part that was actually quite interesting to me was seeing how insiders are approaching trading. First, the total volume of shares traded in June, July, and August actually set records for the company. The number of shares traded out of all shares in the company was around 0.08%. And that zoomed up to, to about 1% in June, July, and August. So there's clearly a lot of insiders, even though there's a robust secondary market, trading these shares. The other piece here that was interesting is that their COO actually is registering about 40% of his shares, whereas most other insiders are only doing 18 to 20%, which is pretty typical given capital gains tax. So it's interesting to me that someone who, you know, the CEO of the company clearly knows a lot about what's going on is clearly trying to sell a larger proportion of shares than is normal for one of these sorts of companies. So, you know, we wrote about it on Extra Crunch. Lots of details, but it's interesting for a 17-year-old company to see so many insiders heading for the the exit doors.
2: I know we don't get this information often, but how common is it that we see that percentage of insider trading? I know it's, I guess, com- it's contrasting well it's a lot to within Palantir, but just like comparing Palantir to other companies.
0: So in an IPO or any sort of direct listing, generally speaking, you'll see insiders uh, trade about fifteen to twenty percent of their shares, and that's because long-term capital gains in the United States is fifteen or twenty percent, depending on your total income, and you you have to sell. So so almost always for signaling reasons, even if you necessarily don't need to sell, you can always of course rebuy your shares. But uh, you know, generally speaking, everyone tries to sell roughly that amount so that they cover taxes. So all you know, going all the way back to say Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg actually sold roughly the same amount in the IPO back in twenty twelve. So that, that isn't surprising. What was surprising, again, was that the CEO is actually selling double the amount. And, and the, the whopping number that to me was like a real surprise was actually employees. So past and current employees, along with service providers that got equity as part of their services, are actually selling 76% of their, their uh, stock in the IPO. So, so anyone who's actually worked for the company over the years, granted, it's been a long time, three quarters of their shares are up for registration uh, as part of the S1. Well, that'll increase the float. well let me
2: let me add that you said september 23rd right danny yes september 20th is the tiktok date and just to bring up tiktok twice in one episode i wonder how that news will impact the september 23rd pop
0: I think it'd be very interesting. I mean, it, it's still two weeks out. Palantir hosted on Wednesday this week. Uh, it's Investor Day, which uh, from what I heard seemed to go okay, although there were a lot of questions about the governance and some of the challenges <laughs> there. Um, no. it, you know, it just remains to be seen. Currently, the shares are valued at roughly $10 billion, which is down from $20 billion in the last round. So it, it, the the valuation has actually declined by half. But again, we're two weeks away. We don't have final pricing numbers. We're going to have those in a couple of weeks. We'll see how it goes.
1: Yeah, so I just want to close off with what is Palantir worth because we talked about this a lot. In, in the latest S1A, the, it's, it's amazing how it's just not worth at all what other people were paying for it. Like you know, in the last quarter, the volume weighted average price was $6.45, about $10.5 billion as Danny said. But in the second quarter, that was $4.71. I mean, that is not, that's nowhere near the $20.5 billion we were told this company was worth when it was uh, valued in its uh, last kind of big private round. So we are about to see a pretty dramatic, and I can't say down IPO, but I can say disappointing direct listing. Maybe It's a DDL. I don't know.
0: It's going to be a little bit of a slog
1: out to the front door. I think it's going to be kind of one of those, like, the doors didn't open, the crowd keeps pushing kind of situations. Everyone's trying to wait for it to, you know, so everything can all escape at once. Look, it's not going to be the world's most exciting debut. It's going to be kind of like a fizzle, I feel. But Palantir is going to happen sometime soon. And exactly. then that brings us it- to...
0: A a far more, a far more electrifying discussion with Nikola and Tesla, who apparently is the kind of name that everyone wants to name their company. But we learned this week that GM is going to be investing through, I guess, a SPAC into electric vehicle company Nikola. Yeah. So
1: General Motors, the American car company that actually makes cars and sells them for money,
0: (laughs) is going to buy an
1: 11% stake in Nikola, which doesn't do those things. And, of course, both companies saw their share prices dramatically rise after this because the stock market is very silly in 2020. And we also looked up if Nikola Tesla had a middle name uh, that could give us a third company in this EV space. And it turns out that he does not. So this is the end of the uh, the the th- theory of his name and reputation. Danny, why or Natasha? Really? Anyone? Why is Jim doing this? Is, is it hype? Is it tech? They're trying to get a, a look into what are they doing here?
0: I hear crickets. I, yeah. You know, honestly, I I mean, GM has a little bit. I mean, famously, GM had a, uh, the, the Volt, what, years and years ago? Yeah, I like that. Uh, and then shut it down um, way too early. Tesla kind of took the EV market. And I think they're trying to catch up. I mean, the reality is, is every manufacturer around the world has, has cars. Hyundai has its EV uh, lineup. Mercedes and BMW are investing in this. Obviously, Tesla has taken a huge amount of uh, mind share, if not market share. And I think GM wants to buy into this. Um, you know, something to pay attention to, we we were talking about static, uh, that's with a Q at the end there, which is an India-based EV charging network that's in YC. But a lot of countries, like India, uh, are putting in serious mandates around EVs, right? So India wants to move to a mostly EV market yep. uh, within the next 20 years. And so for companies like GM, Ford, incumbents that are used to sort of the gas-guzzling American consumer, if they want to continue to grow internationally in Europe, in Asia, they increasingly have to own this particular market and so i think this is just an attempt to take advantage of Nikola's technology you know and, and build a kind of a synergistic strategy to try to make it work
1: yeah and what is the most popular uh vehicle to buy in the united states today it's the ford f-150 right the ford f-250 the ford f line of trucks and gm doesn't own those they're ford and so if you're staring down the barrel of what could be a 2021 all electric ford f-150 you know, kind of line truck in you're a GM, you probably want to have at least one bet somewhere on the future of what trucks could be for consumers. And I think Nikola has done a good job bringing a lot of that spotlight to itself with its kind of like innovative, I'll say designs for future possible vehicles that it may produce at some later date once it builds a factory and stuff.
2: Talking about cars makes me miss talking about SPACs because I think even SPACs is more interesting to me than cars.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of agree with Natasha here. Uh, <laughs> Unless we're talking about racing, then it's a lot of fun. But cars in general bore the bore the tears off me. But it's a it's a big deal, and I think what this does is critically is make this spacked company a bit more legit because GM is a real company with real people, and real employees, and real products, and it's, it's a famous old company. So to see them give this kind of the stamp of approval is uh, certainly notable. And that, ladies and gentlemen, I think is the end of of our show. What a what a week! Don't forget, we are going to be back next week. We are going to be doing uh, a live show, kind of. For the investor, something or other at Disrupt. There's, there'll be an ad about that about five minutes ago that has better details than what I just did. Uh, but don't worry, that show will be coming out uh, on the usual podcasting uh, networks on time. So we will not be abandoning you or leaving you high and dry. But if you do email us in the next week, we will not get back to you because hashtag Disrupt. Uh, Natasha,
0: Danny, anything else?
2: That's it. All right. See you guys all next week.
1: All right. Bye, y'all. I have a better, I
0: have a much better segue than that. Talking about social and stocks, Slack also had its earnings this week. Who else had earnings this week? We're talking about... ah, I'll redo it. See you... you